Hey guys, welcome to this week's Money and Investing Show. This week we are looking at mastering dividend investments. One of those things that sometimes falls out of fashion as people look for other ways of getting sizzle from the markets, but in actual fact, when used in the right way, can give you a very, very healthy tailwind to boost returns in your portfolio. Plenty of notes to take in here, but as always, please do make sure you take plenty of action. See you in the show. Hey guys, welcome to this week's Money Investing Show with me, your host, Andrew Baxter, and as always, my offsider and co-host, Mitchell Renshaw. Good to be here, Mr. B. Thank you very much for having me and jumping straight into today's episode. Common thread amongst our client base and the investing world at large out there today is mastering the art of the dividend portfolio. Mm, indeed. Investing for dividends is quite a, a divisive subject on, on many metrics where you're kind of in one camp where you're investing for the passive income versus another camp that's looking for outright growth. What's right for you? I guess this podcast will help steer you. Absolutely. And if we think back and we've particularly the older generation of Australians. I think my grandparents, the ones that were are still here today, even harp on, you've got to invest for dividends every mm. six months. And you know it's a very old philosophy, although it still has a place in today's world, right? Look, it does. I guess some people look at it as being free income. Not everything you think is free income is. And I guess we'll cover that off in some, some level of detail too. So I guess first things first, what is a dividend? And in its purest form, a dividend is an amount of money that is paid by the company to its shareholders at set times through the year. Australia, typically every six months, sometimes quarterly, but generally every six months. In the US, it usually is quarterly. And I guess the amount that you receive by way of dividend is your reward for being a shareholder in that business and a stakeholder and is, in its purest form, I suppose, your share of the company's profits. That's right. Now, some of these companies can pay out quite big dividends. Others can pay out fairly small dividends. So I guess the the trick of the trade, so to speak, is actually evaluating which dividend stocks you might want to invest in. Mm. A couple of key metrics that we might utilize to justify that, AB, what are they? Look, I think the, the, the two main ones would be the the, the payout ratio in, in the first instance, and then what that looks like from a yield perspective. I think also it's important to take into account the trajectory that the shares are on too, because if a company is, is and we'll get on to payout ratios in a moment, if a company is quite generous in terms of paying out its profits to its shareholders, at least on one metric, you think, well, this is, this is fantastic. I'm receiving, you know, over and above probably what I should be. But that can sometimes come as a trade off to the long term performance of the company's share price. Um, we'll talk about that in a moment too. So if you think about the payout ratio, so that's basically what percentage of the overall earnings per share you receive as an investor. So it might be a payout ratio of say 70% of the earnings for each individual share that's on issue. That means the investor, the shareholder is receiving 70% of the distributable profit and the company's retaining 30% of that to keep on its balance sheet to reinvest in, in other areas of the business to fund growth and things of that nature. And I think, you know, you've got to be kind of careful. Rome wasn't built in a day. You don't want to just pull all the dividend and leave no money in the company for it to fund growth. Otherwise, things can stagnate. And I think about you know, a company like Telstra, for example, which has had a fairly rich payout ratio over the years and, and not really retained that much of its of its earnings per share. And and maybe that's come at the expense of the performance of its share price, which is, you know, 
pretty average to say the least. It's interesting you say this. It, it kind of makes me think that it's almost like having a small business here in Australia. And a lot of our listeners are probably in that camp where you might have some retained profits at the end of the quarter or the end of the year. Mm. Do you pay yourself a bonus or a wage or do you keep the money within your company to pay your bills and reinvest as you say? Mm. What are the advantages and disadvantages of paying out a large sum of your EPS as dividends? Look, I think it, it goes in waves and depends on where you're at within the business cycle. And as a company, some companies are extremely effective at investing capital. So for every dollar they put in, they produce two or three or five or 10 uh, and are able to then distribute that to their investors. And everyone's pretty happy. It's also probably reflected in the company's share price, which would, would of course grow too. And then there are other scenarios where companies might sit with you know, a fairly large uh, amount of cash on their balance sheet and that money needs to be put to work because it can distort your financial returns. If you're sitting with, 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 with a major amount of cash. So let's say, you know, you've divested from something, uh, you sold off a subsidiary. You know, if you think about, you know, BHP with S32. So you got shares in both companies and you might have got a cash amount to go with that as well. Yeah, BHP could retain that cash and put it into another mining operation to spin it into more. Or at certain points, given efficiency of capital, they might go, look, we don't have an immediate use for this money. So we're going to pay it out by way of a special dividend to our shareholders, which Always yeah, nice. can happen too. And you know, if you're on the receiving end of that, of course, it's, it, it's quite nice, or at least in theory it is. The other side of the coin is if a company has a hundred million dollars on its balance sheet, which is dividends it's going to pay out to its shareholders. Once that money is paid out to its shareholders on what's called the the ex dividend date. So there are a few dates around dividends, and we'll get onto this in a, in a, in a bit. It confuses a lot of people, you know. It, it can. So the, the, when a company announces its profit, it, it will normally come out and discuss its earnings, and it will state what its dividend uh, is going to be. So there's the uh, the announcement date. Then there's the the payment date, and then there's the ex-dividend date. Now, the ex-dividend date is the the last day that you can own the shares or, or the, day, the, the date that you must own the shares. You've got to be on the shareholder register in order to qualify for the dividend. So the three very different dates. And so when that date is announced and, and the money is then paid and the share goes ex-dividend, so the shares might be $9.50 a share. They've just paid a 50-cent dividend out. So that 50 cents per share will likely come off the value of the shares. They're worth less now because they don't have cash in the company's bank account. It's now in your bank account as an investor. So on one hand, as an investor, you've got income, but on the other side of the coin, you've probably had a capital loss. Not always. Some companies engage in what's called hold the dividend, and you might see that the share price doesn't fall by as much as what they've paid out or indeed goes back up. That's usually a, a sign of a very, very strong operating company. But usually the share price will fall by at least the dividend amount. So from an investor perspective, that's like taking the money out of your left pocket and putting it in your right pocket. You're not actually better off. It's just gone from capital to income account. Gotcha. Okay. So that's that's something just to look out for in, in that space. The other metric we look at is dividend yield. And that Super is- Super important. What, what income did the company pay out relative to its share price? And that will move around depending on interest rates at the time. If interest rates are higher, dividends need to be a little bit higher to attract you know, an appetite from investors too. So that can move up or down a little bit depending on dividend, on, on interest rates, but also you know, the, the, the ebb and flow within the economy. If it's a slower economy, then earnings are likely to be a bit slower and therefore dividends will be a little bit thinner as well. So they're probably the main things within that murky pool of dividends. Oh yeah. So when we talk about building a portfolio, it's a mm. question we we get a lot. When you're looking at yield, there's 
arguably the most important metric when you're investing solely for mm. dividends. You have the notion of balancing yield with risk because we know that some companies can entice shareholders by paying out a pretty large yield on mm. their dividend, right? What would you suggest for anyone who's in that situation looking to build a dividend portfolio? You do have to be very careful because it's not just the income, it's also what the capital value of your shares are over time too. And I would argue that if you're just a specific dividend investor and you're just looking to target a very reasonable cash flow from your shares each and every year, you kind of almost have to turn a blind eye to what the share price is doing because your 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 focus is on pulling income out of it, not the overall performance of the shares. And that can be problematic during times of inflation or indeed over a longer time frame. If you again, if we talk about Telstra, which has paid a fairly juicy dividend to its shareholders over the years, yeah, you know, if you're in Telstra one and two, you're probably in for about seven dollars, seven dollars twenty for the two lots of shares. Here we are, you know, nearly 30 years later and your shares are worth $4.50. So you've received a very handsome dividend each and every year, but it's come at the expense of the performance of the shares. Now, if you look at what the cost of living has done over that 30-year period of time, yes, you've received income, but your capital value has been absolutely decimated. It's not kept up with inflation. It's almost halved. And so you're well, well behind the eight ball with that. So the, the, there's more than one metric to look at. Yes, the the income flow is good, but are you looking at shares that have got the capacity to have a grinding higher share price that, that enable you to maintain capital value as well as income. And I think that's a step that's often overlooked when people just simply chase a dividend yield. A good example of the banks in Australia, which, you know, to, to all intents and purposes have been in a trading range for a couple of years and they've continued to pay out good dividends throughout that time frame. But there's, you know, depending on when you got in, you know, you could have got in CBA at $80 or it could be at $115, which is very different kind of outcome. So there's always an emphasis on your timing to get into a share. But all the way through, you've received a fairly handsome, you know, fully frank dividend, which I guess we'll talk about in a few moments. So if you're going to build a portfolio, a couple of key things. Number one, you want to have growth businesses that have a forward look on the economy that are going to continue to be relevant and have a share price, which over time you would expect to grind higher. Secondly, is that resilience of dividend? Is it just a one-off where they've paid a big yield because they had a cash surplus because of a disposal of an asset or is the underlying business throwing off a heap of cash and they just need to distribute it? And 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 thirdly is, is the tax treatment of those dividends too. I'd also argue that you probably want a reasonably diversified portfolio because dividend investing is typically a long-term, let's hold these shares for five, 10 years. So you're going to want to have a few things in banking, a few things in mining, a few things in tech to give you some spread so that you're not all all in on one sector. And if that sector underperforms, you, know, you lose some capital value, but the dividends could get cut back too. Gotcha. One term you, you threw out there, which is unique actually to Australia, is franking credits. Mm. Now, our listeners may be familiar with this, they may not. Quite an interesting system, how it works. It's beneficial for us here in Australia. Can you talk to us about what it is and how it works? Okay, so the way a franking credit effectively works is that the dividend income is paid to the investor on a tax paid basis. Now the tax tax rate that's used is the prevailing company tax rate. It's currently 25%. So the tax is paid at 25% on that income from your dividend. So if you received $10,000 of dividend income, if it's fully franked, you've had tax paid on that at 25%. So it's been $2,500 worth of tax paid on that. Now, depending on the ownership of those shares, if you own them in your own name, and let's say your tax rate is 35%, well, tax is already paid at 
25% on, on that income. So all you need to do is pay a further 10%, which would be the top-up tax to take it to your full marginal rate. Softens the blow a little Softens bit. Softens the blow. Where it really comes into the fore, and it's a particularly useful strategy, is in structures like superannuation, where the tax rate currently is at 15%. And so the income tax on those dividends has been paid at 25, but your actual tax rate, if it's held within super, is only 15 so there's been an overpayment of tax. So that credit, the overpayment of tax is then passed on to your super fund, which you can then use as an offset for other other income tax liabilities that you might have in. So it makes it very, very effective, particularly within super. Because dividends are income effectively, right? Mm-hmm. So there's always tax payable on that, but depending on what your marginal rate is. And then poses the the question for structuring. So super a very effective way to do that. Are there any others that spring to mind for you? Look, if you if you're in a, a company structure with your holdings or family trust of some sort, then you know at best it becomes a neutral event and not not necessarily a taxable income. A couple of other little landmines, I suppose, if you're in that dividend space, is the 45 day rule, which you often hear talked about in Australia again. And as you rightly say, this is an Australian phenomenon; doesn't exist anywhere. There's a little bit of a political movement at the moment to maybe abolish franking credits too. So to be eligible for a full franking credit, you've got to hold the shares for 45 days. It's actually 47 days because it's the day you buy, the day you sell plus 45 days. Right, okay. Technically accurate, so it's 47 days. And then you get the full full benefit of that franking credit. But uh, it's fairly unique. And you know, if you look at other ways of investing, if you look in the US, for example, dividends typically are a little bit thinner because I think from a US investor perspective, there's far more emphasis on capital growth Whereas in Australia, there's a, a bit of a balance between the two. People want some growth, but that income flow is a historical thing that investors are looking for. You know, if you look at tech, for example, most of the money is retained to reinvest in the business. So the dividends are very, very low. And if you Super were, low yield. If you were looking at you know, a decent technology business and go, well, you know, that's got a really appalling dividend yield. Why would you invest in that? Well, chances are you've seen the share price jump 40 or 50% over the last 12 months. Yeah. That's why you're investing in it for yeah. the retained earnings and the expansion within the business on the back of it. So, you know, you get other businesses that are in the utility space, perhaps it might pay a little bit more dividend just because it's a more cash flow orientated business rather than growth. But yeah, it's, um, it's a very, very different lens to look through. Indeed. Now, as we come to the end of the broadcast, AB, we always like to finish off with some practical examples, a case study, if you will. Mm. Now, I know we've spoken of this trade many, many times because it's one of your bell ringing trades. This was the one on NAB. Mm. So can we get a bit of a rundown on how you've utilized dividends yourself? Okay. So to use an analogy, if, if, you, if you're involved with an investment, you, you could set yourself a really, if you can imagine reversing a trailer, which is not the easiest task. Not my skill set. Reversing a trailer through a gateway can be quite tricky. And if it's a really narrow gateway, it's really hard. Whereas if the gateway is you know, 50 feet wide, virtually anybody can reverse a trailer through there. And I think as an investor, the more you can stack the deck in your favor to make it harder to get wrong as, as a starting point, as a, as a base case, then the more likelihood you're going to have of a positive outcome on the trade. So if you're really trying to throw the needle, let's say you're running a credit spread that's got two weeks to run, you know, you've got a very narrow window of price action within a very short period of time for the trade to land on point for you to make your money. And you'll get paid handsomely if you do that, but that's if you do that. And if you don't, then the downside is there too. 
on the other side of the coin, if you were to do an investment, we go, okay, I'm going to hold something for a period of time. How can I widen the gateway to make it easier to reverse through to get a more likely positive outcome? I think sometimes looking at dividends is a good way to do that because taking NAB as an example, and we, we've obviously done a little marketing around this, NAB stable business, banking stock, reasonable payout, nice yield. So it paid out two dividends over the last 12 months, 83 and 84 cents. So this was that $1.67 of dividends, which is about 4.7% on the share price at the time of entry. As the yield, so to speak. So 4.7% yield before you start. And so from an investor perspective, if you compare that to holding cash, and you've got to remember, any investor has got a decision as to what they're going to do with their money. You can put it under your mattress, you could hold it in cash, you put it in markets, you could speculate. There's a, a myriad of things that you can do. So holding cash, 4.5% in a savings account, less inflation, negative return. Or you could take the view that I'm going to put this in stock. So rather than buy, put your money in a NAB reward account, you can put your money into NAB shares. Over a 12-month window, you're going to get a $1.67 in dividend, which is about 4.7% on a, on a yield basis, which puts you ahead of holding cash before you start. The flip side is you run the risk that there could be some capital loss, or indeed, you have the opportunity of some capital gain. So you've got a free money coming in the door by way of the dividend, assuming they don't turn the dividend off, which is fairly unlikely. But there is a risk that the share price could drop away. Now, we did this trade and we put it out into marketing and it ended up being a 15.9% trade over seven months. So it was a pretty nice trade. Yeah, Bought some puts to protect it on the way through, which cost a little bit of the upside, but it meant that there was capital protection on the way through there as well. So you could hold the stock and keep your capital protected and, and, and have quite a nice little lick out of it. So for an investor in that trade, what you've got is a gateway that's already 4.7% on the table by way of dividends before you start, plus any capital move in the stock, you're starting to increase your probability of coming out of that with a with a pretty reasonable income. And I think sometimes if you look at dividends through that lens as a something of a tailwind for your overall total return for the year, then it's giving you something that's a good sort of raise on your start line. Before you start, you can expect four and a half, five percent in the door. Anything you do on top of that is your value add, either through picking good quality stocks or timing the market well or using derivatives such as options to to augment returns, which of course is our bread and butter. So that gateway widening is a way I like to con- consider dividends. Bear in mind, of course, and the trade-off is that after the company pays its dividends, you can expect a little drop back in the share price. So the two ways of mitigating that, one is potentially buying puts to protect yourself from some of that downside, or you're just going to hold it over an extended period of time and ride that noise out. And I'd probably suggest that anyone that's you know, really a dividend investor needs to ride that noise out rather than try and time the market. Indeed. I really like that, AB, because that brings in all of the stuff we've just spoken mm. of there and takes a very active approach. I suppose the other side of the coin is is Dividend Hunter or Endless Summer. Oh, I remember that one. That was a so, good one. Yeah, for those of you that haven't seen it, it's probably one of the best feel-good movies. Endless Summers is a great surf movie, I think from the 60s, early 70s. One of my dad's favorites, mm-hmm. actually. So you've got these two dudes and they're, they're literally it's a world of innocence, traveling around, following the summer around the world, surfing, surfing around the world, and just following the summer months as they go on. And, and, and to some extent, we've used that as an investment strategy too, where what we actively seek to do is find shares that have a propensity to pay quite a healthy dividend. But rather than hold them for the dividend where you get the income in your right pocket, but then the capital loss in your left pocket, is to buy into them on a low, trade them as they run up higher toward their dividend date, and then close out of the position before they pay the dividend. So you get the capital gain, 
share price drops, but you've had the gain uh, and, and you've already moved that money then into the next stock and the next stock and the next stock. And that can be quite an effective strategy. There's a little bit of work involved with it, but it, it actually is a pretty decent strategy to run through the year. Tax-wise, again, very, very important that you get yourself structured in the right way because you don't want to be liable for capital gains tax on that. So if you're in the right kind of structure, you can eliminate that risk from from falling on you from the ATO and then make it quite a, a, an effective strategy. So that's almost the anti anti-dividend type of trading, but the outcome is the same. You're looking for those regular runs to put a boost into your account. And they're very, very different ways of mastering dividend investing. There's investing for dividends or there's investing for not dividends, but using dividends as the catalyst for it, if that kind of makes sense. <laughs> very and, nice. And, you know, whatever floats you about, I like to try and widen that gateway, especially if I've got a less certain view on markets. So if you know you're going to pick up a couple of fairly reliable dividends and that's giving you a tailwind into a trade, then it's down to you to value add either through your timing or strategy to to try and get a club a bit more out of it. But yeah, I thought you know, 15, 15.9% for seven months is quite take a reasonable that. return. You take it and 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 long may it continue. And if you're able to rotate your portfolio through that every every few months, then it should make for some really, really healthy returns overall. Again, that comes down to structuring. That was in my super. So it's very tax effective to pick up those dividends. If it were in my personal name, it will be less so because the tax rates are obviously quite different. Indeed. So again, it goes back to why structuring is also such an important part of it. But dividends, uh, a lot of people overlook them now. You know, it's a bit old hat. And in actual fact, they do play a reasonable role in investing. And if you use them the right way, I think they can they can add some decent absolute value to your returns. Indeed. Well, there we have it, AB, Mastering Dividend Investing. Thank you very much for that. My pleasure. Anytime, Mitch. There you have it, guys. Make sure you share this show with somebody that you feel would benefit from the content. Give us a review and a rating, and we'll look forward to hosting you next week.